Welcome to this week's episode of Daily Horror Habit, the podcast for horror obsessives. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you horror movie discussions every Friday for your twisted pleasure. And as always be warned, these reviews and discussions may include spoilers. Continuing this month's theme of the merits of remakes, my guests and I are taking a look at writer and director Werner Herzog's remake of Nosferatu with his 1979 film Nosferatu the Vampire, in which Count Dracula moves from Transylvania to Wismar, bringing the Black Plague with him, and it's up to the pure-hearted Lucy Harker to stop him. And joining me this week to chat all things horror, remakes, and vampires is returning friend of the show and Rue Morgue Magazine's video game editor, Evan Miller. Evan, welcome back to the show, man. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure to be here. I want to suck your blood. <laughs> right from the top, I got to thank you once again for giving me the excuse to watch it, right? Because last time we chatted about Mothman Prophecy, which was a movie... You know, I'd heard about ever since it was released, but never got around to watching it. And now, you know, with Nosferatu the Vampire, again, you know, it's one of those movies that I've always been aware of, but you know how it is. You watch movies all the time or you got to play games or juggle work and family stuff. It's kind of like something's going to fall through the cracks inevitably. So I appreciate the opportunity to chat about it finally. Hell yeah. Um, I, I always like to introduce or mention this movie if people have never seen it because like i think it's really um special and i do i do like vampires like as a monster and you know as like a metaphor and everything uh and there's a lot of great like film history attached to vampires and stuff like that so uh you know it's it's like uh probably i would say like maybe what i consider to be the best um, obviously, other than the original, I mean, the original is like, you know, a masterpiece, but uh, I, if, on any given day, if you were to ask me, like, what's your favorite vampire movie, it'd be this, so. And I'm somebody that hasn't necessarily watched a ton of vampire movies. Again, just, you know, certain things fall through the cracks, things don't get prioritized like they should. And I would say that this movie feels like a distinct standout from a lot of the traditional types of vampire movies that are out there or that I've seen personally. So I'm really excited to kind of dive into what makes this, you know, a standout or at least your short list of being one of the best vampire movies, but at the same time, why it's a standout remake for you. But mm -hmm. I guess before we get too deep into the movie, we should do sort of a baseline. Like what is your general feeling on horror movie remakes? And what do you, I guess, can constitute making a good one or a successful one? So I think with remakes, uh, I feel like I'm maybe maybe this is uh, a more popular opinion now, but I kind of like the idea of if you're going to remake it, you know, don't do the um, Vince Vaughn psycho thing. Like, uh, you know, uh, take take some liberties with it, but like keep true to some. I think if if a director and the and the crew and everybody like keep true to what they appreciate about an original i i think it can take some pretty wild liberties um and i will still dig it and like a good example of that i think is um suspiria which i think mm. when we were talking about this because uh, yeah i mean like suspiria is a movie with like zero plot it's just like all style 
and the other the new the remake like totally puts like a actual cohesive you know story and setting and everything in there so i think just that like um kind of go crazy with it a little bit uh to make it worth it otherwise you know and i know that this movie yeah, like Herzog does recreate scenes and, you know, I, I, but it's more like homage. Um, and I know it's like, there are only a handful of movies that just totally recreate shot for shot, like, uh, what they're based on or, or what they're redoing. Um, but yeah, I think have some element of the spirit that you find important as an artist or as a whatever. Um, and, do your own thing with it a little bit because what's the point otherwise like it's already been made so you know i i hate to bring up the monsters already like it's already we're, we're <laughs> not even five minutes in but you know i'm not you know i watched that trailer but i'm not uh hating on that because i i kind of dig what rob zombie does like halloween one and two aren't perfect but like the way Halloween too just kind of goes off the rails and stuff, I appreciate. So I know some people are just going to be like, "All right, screw this guy." I'm turning the podcast off when I say that, but uh, <laughs> that's how I feel. So I, I mean, you and I are complete agreement on Halloween too, right? And you know, I champion that sentiment that you have with remakes largely. I laughed earlier when you mentioned the Vince Vaughn Psycho because that's the third time now. A guest has referenced that as being not the way to do a remake, right? Because I think at the end of the day, like you said, it's more about serving as a homage, but the film still feeling like it's representative of the director's own sensibilities or style, right? And I think that going off the rail, it's kind of how I feel about sequels in a similar way. It's like you're taking that playground, essentially, that's been established and there need to be some similarities, obviously, because you're going to tie it. Otherwise, why would it be connected to the original or the pr- film that came before it? But at the end of the day, like the final product needs to be representative of the w- types of films or stories that that filmmaker themselves would tell and sort of just going wild with it in these, you know, whether it be uh, a change of tone, a change of setting, a change of you know, ratcheting up like the gore or violence and whatnot, thinking about like the Evil Dead remake in particular. Um, but at the end of the day, like really, I I think that we have gotten to the point with remakes now where we're kind of aging out of the shot for shot. And that's just kind of like the whole identity of a remake for, you know, within the last five or so years or 10 years or so. Yeah. Because we, there really was a point early on when it was like, well, we're just going to like, take what worked and recreate it with a fresh coat of paint, which, you know, that doesn't work necessarily for film. And that's when you kind of get those, uh, those portions of fan bases and whatnot that say like, oh, well, you're just doing this for the money. And I always find that like the best remakes are the ones that begin familiar enough and then they just take it in a completely different direction. Or again, like there's something about it that is foreign to the original, but it works because it still plays within like certain parameters that were established in, you know, the original film or in the case of a sequel, uh, the film that came before it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that Nosferatu, the vampire is a film that does a really good job of serving as a homage, but then at the same time, it feels like they go about it in a very different way that kind of fuels the elements that, you know, for me personally, and this is very much a me thing, like, 
the theatricality of vampires has been something that is probably why I haven't necessarily watched a great deal of them because I always kind of got turned off of those types of things where, you know, you get this this count in this luxurious mansion and he's like pontificating on his views on life and humanity and all these things. And it's very grandiose. And, you know, at the end of the day, those portrayals perhaps didn't necessarily play to elements of horror that I liked. Mm -hmm. And I was pleasantly surprised to find that, you know, in Herzog's film, it very much shies away from that. And so I'm curious, you know, getting into the film for you, like how does Herzog successfully capitalize on that source material while still having the film be his own and be distinctively different. Well, it's interesting because, yeah, you talk about the theatricality and, like, what is more theatrical than Nosferatu, like the Murnau, you know, original, um, just in terms of it's on a, on a technical level, um, the fact that, obviously, it's a silent movie, so it's, like, very much, you know, silent film is not like life. <laughs> you know, <it's> not, <laughs> yeah. It is so, you know removed uh and yet you know those audiences when they were watching it were you know right there on the screen like feeling it so um i think herzog with with this one he just brings that kind of like herzog quality to this like i mean i know he uh he's very you know uh skilled at making documentaries and at moments this almost feels like a documentary it has this very tangible very natural uh feeling in every scene right from the beginning uh you feel you're you know you look around the what you're seeing on screen and it's like okay this is a real building or this is a real castle this is not a set like these are real um landscapes that he's shooting even the opening shot of those mummies, those real mummies uh, in Mexico, you know, if you're, if you, I, I, didn't, I wasn't aware of what those were. I had looked them up after I saw the film because I was like, are these like, these look insane. Like, what are these? these are crazy. <laughs> yeah. Like, I did the same thing. Yeah. And it's like, sure enough. Yeah. No, those are real mummies. And, you know, they're in Mexico, but hey, like, it's a great, really dark opening. Like, it's just with that music and the, and the shots are just panning, you know, through those mummified corpses. So, um, I have to say too, that intro, like I went back to look at the rating and the rating, it's obviously a PG movie. And I was just like, man, they made PG movies different in the seventies. Cause <laughs> that scene would have scared the shit out of me as a little kid, yeah. because it was just such highly detailed little mummies that and you know it's got that brooding music and it's got that heartbeat playing and it's just slowly panning yeah. and you know you describing the film feeling like a documentary is a really great way to put it because you do feel like you're getting this tour through this world that's foreign but of course you know it's it's not with the exception of one uh, one landmark that we'll get into like it's a film that's set in the real world mm-hmm. right and it's not overly fantastical in his depiction of the real world for the most part, right? And you really do feel like he's taking you on a tour of just a real place, which he is, but the way in which he's able to sort of weaponize that documentary kind of feeling where it's like, okay, you're just a fly on the wall almost, like that has a real quality to this film that I think visually right from the beginning, it makes it ominous without, you know, having Dracula, you know, 
suck somebody's blood or kill somebody in the first 90 seconds. Granted, it's a PG movie, but yeah. you know what I mean. Yeah, I actually didn't know this was a PG movie. That is wild, man. I, I guess, because why wouldn't it be? Like, there's not a lot of graphic stuff. Um, anyway. Incredibly dark, though, right? Yeah, well, that's the thing is, like, uh, I know, like, that Nosferatu is, like, king, you know, goth film, but, like, this movie is, like, gothic. Like, this movie <laughs> is just dripping, you know, everything gothic. Like, uh and it's it's kind of it's got this like surreal dream quality to it which is very i find like so captivating because how can you be how can you feel like at once like a documentary and a dream you know like how 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 does he mix these so well in this uh it's it's crazy and uh yeah like the first time I saw it, I just was not prepared. I didn't, I didn't really know too much about it. Um, other than the fact that like, I love the original film. So I had that, you know, I was like, okay, well, I know the structure, but what's interesting is that, um, the year basically when the production, I think I read started for this film, uh, Dracula became like public domain or whatever. And so the original Nosferatu is, obviously dracula but they had to change everything that's why he's count orlock you know he's not dracula uh the the characters names are switched around and changed completely uh yeah and so now herzog could do that and so there is this like you have all these names like jonathan and mina and you know or um yeah and and so they're all there and that's kind of adds to this like surreal quality to it too because you're like hold on this is Nosferatu wait they're saying the Dracula names what like <laughs> Nosferatu like by nature knock off Dracula like uh and so everything like right down to and then that yeah the, but going back to that opening scene and it's just one shot and it just keeps moving and you know it's just like what what kind of hellscape is this that I'm entering in and then and then you're greeted with Renfield and that laugh, that horrible, horrible laugh. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I'm sorry if when it got to that point, if you were like wanting to shut the movie off, because it is pretty rough. Um, and I heard it's a little better. It's a little less pronounced than the German version. But Well, I'm so glad that you brought up that dreamlike quality of the movie, because that's what I was most taken with right from the beginning. Right. And I think that what I was most surprised with, again, in this portrayal of Dracula and you know this whole mythos is just how like it, this is a much quieter film than I was anticipating not only in you know the portrayal of Dracula which we'll get to but overall just the sense of having this dreamlike world and all of this horrible shit happens throughout the course of the film but you know it never really feels like it loses that documentary style kind of handholding through the world or tour through the world you know you have granted by the end of the film like the entire town is essentially wiped out by the black plague and you know of course jonathan uh, ends up being comatose for the second half of the film and all of these people that we meet end up dying and yet the the sort of like tension or the intensity of the film it feels like it never gets raised a decibel because you always are operating in this dreamlike sense of reality. I mean, the first, not that I'm like well-versed in uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula, but 
I was surprised at the depiction of uh, the castle, right? Which when Jonathan is kind of going to this small little gypsy town before he even gets to the castle, right? They're talking about how it's a ruin that you can see up in the mountains. Mm -hmm. And then he's like, no, it's a castle. Somebody lives there. And he goes, no, it's only a castle in like the minds of man. And this idea that it's ruins, but there is this aura about it that when you're there, it looks like it's this massive, you know, luxurious, if you will, castle that one person apparently lives in. Uh, And that I think in and of itself is such a almost like, of course, it originates from the novel, but I mean, it feels very much in terms of a reference for film, like very Fulci-esque almost, right? (laughs) This kind of like trying to decide what is reality and what is something that basically infects humans' minds and then kind of creates a false sense of reality for them. And, you know, I thought that that was far more effective and terrifying than just kind of having, you know, another castle that you've seen in any number of Hammer films or anything of that nature. And, you know, when you Jonathan is actually in the castle, it's depicted as that. But just knowing constantly in the back of your mind that like, oh, none of this is real. He's just kind of walking around ruins, essentially, by himself. Well, not by himself, but with Dracula. And, you know, that takes on a much more ominous feeling throughout the entire opening of the film. Again, without having some drastic moment other than, you know... Dracula wanting to suck his his uh, his finger yeah. against his will, which is a wild move. But I mean, overall, like it sets the scene so well before you even see Dracula, who you know has this terrific prosthetics and whatnot. Like it just it creates a sense of unease without having some big in your face moment, if you will. Well, it also it adds to the 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 believability or the tangible uh tangible you know thing sense about it because if you saw this fucking guy come open <laughs> the, the door swings open without anybody moving it he's got this crazy hat he's standing there in this tall trench coat he's got nails that are like you know uh, four inches long he's got two little rat teeth at the like you could never you'd be like okay i'm getting out of here like you're not a human you're not a normal person i'm gonna leave uh thank you goodbye right but because jonathan's like yeah sucked up into this kind of like magical you know uh veil being like pulled over his eyes and the the whole like you know mysticism of the the vampire and the prey you know the vampire and its prey and like the the kind of dance that they do and that scene that you mentioned with where he is like saying he's feeding him as uh nosferatu is like feeding him those crazy lines like oh i'm gone all day you know don't worry about it uh the servants are all away or not here sorry i gotta do i gotta pour your water for you and then he cuts himself on a dull bread knife um jonathan does and then yeah he's, he's like oh you know it might be dirty let me suck that let me suck that for you, bro. That's the only way. <laughs> uh, he, what is it? What is that line that he has? He's like, it's the oldest remedy in the world yeah, or something. <laughs> like, it's so strange. Like, you just, nothing about it, right? But that's, I mean, that's what's amazing. Like, uh, but, and then the quiet, you know, like uh, Klaus Kinski's just crazy performance where it's just like, he's just like this calm kind of, he almost looks like a scared you know animal or something at first and there's that moment where he just slams the chair and just starts creepily like you know and then it's like 
uh, and then they just sit down by the fire together. Like, you know, nothing. It's just like, what the hell is going on? Um, <laughs> well, I had read, you know, I'm not super familiar with a lot of Klaus Kinski's work, but I had read that, you know, he was known on multiple occasions to, uh, you know, be very difficult. And that's probably putting it lightly mm-hmm. to work with. Um, and apparently Herzog to get around that would like provoke him on set to get him to freak out and tantrum. And then when he was exhausted, then they would start filming. And, you know, again, like it could be kind of one of those hearsay anecdotes from somebody that was on the reverse Kubrick or wait. (laughs) Well, I guess when, when you're provoking the toxic behavior, then, and you're not doing it yourself. Yeah. I guess that's a reverse Kubrick. Sorry. Yeah, no, that, that, that works. But I think that, you know, that comes across in that performance, right? Because like you said, he does come off as being very fatigued, being very lethargic in his movements. And that plays with the way in which this portrayal of Dracula is. Again, Mm -hmm. like for all of the things that I am usually uh, adverse to, if you will, for like portrayals of Dracula or vampires in general, right? Is that they're very over the top. They like to have these long monologues and all these things and the glitz and the glam and they're basically skating around their true intentions. But with this, you know, to put it in like simple, simplistic terms, like he kind of almost plays it like an addict sort of, right? Mm -hmm. In that he seems like he's about to literally fall over. And as soon as he gets like a hit of that blood, right? What is the first thing he does? He exerts more energy than he has in the first 10 minutes of seeing him. And when he like throws over that chair, And then his behavior becomes very, you know, I would say more aggressive in that he's just like walking towards him and not saying anything to the point that like Jonathan basically falls into the chair by the fire and then they sit down and kind of just hang out, have a bro sesh. But I just love the fact that there's so little that is learned about, you know, Nosferatu early on, but it's more informed by what he does rather than what he says. We don't have to listen to him like, Give again. Give this monologue that talks about his uh, his theology or his just you know views on mankind or these things. It's like no, that's all derived from just his body language, yeah. which I think is really perfectly you know comes about in having more almost being more effective. I think than him again. You know, giving us this long drastic monologue and whatnot. Well, and you nailed it. I mean, what is a vampire? an addict right like they're just searching for blood they have one thing you know and that's it that's it so like even when uh when they first sit down at the table and he's just watching him um watching him eat and drink and it's just his breathing's just becoming heavier and heavier and heavier because he's like i have this like blood bag in my house like you know let's <laughs> go like it's been forever yeah. thirsty so uh yeah like it's it's a really amazing performance and that when i think of this movie i think of that scene um because obviously that's just that whole scene and the way it tracks and the way the camera just follows him slowly you know coming up and then going in and out of speed bursts and then jonathan sits in the chair that's not something that would have been you know possible in the uh silent film obviously uh i think that that's a great um thing to highlight though from that scene right is that like just the way that he is like having this heavy breathing as he observes Jonathan doing these things and that really informs the direction and you know there 
Perhaps there have been other vampire films that have tried to do something similar, but they really do make this creature fairly, like pretty sympathetic mm-hmm. in the course of the film and kind of highlighting the fact that this is somebody that is essentially like their longing in life now in this point in their, you know, however many centuries they've been alive for, right, is to have some semblance of, you know, love or having a companion and then also just the fact that like if they can't obtain that, what's the next best thing? Oh, they would just like to, you know, cease to exist because they're not able to enjoy anything, right? I think that that has probably always been one of the, you know, pillars of vampires in, you know, whether it be novels or movies and whatnot. It's like, well, people first and foremost fall for that allure, right? It's like, oh, well, you can live forever and enjoy life. But then you kind of realize, you know, after you do that for 100, 200, 300, 400 years, it's like, well, you're going to get bored of that. And there's only so many things that you can experience in a life. And the fact that you can live forever is inevitably going to become sort of the downfall of you. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that they do a really great job of subtly doing that. You know, obviously he tells Jonathan from almost the jump, he's like, oh, I'm looking for a companion or something like that. Or at some point it comes up, but you can just get a semblance of what his, you know, experience has been for God knows how long, just based off of the way he reacts to the most simple of actions of Jonathan's. And like you said, the heavy breathing, not only is he kind of fighting the urge to, you know, drain this blood bag but also on some level he's probably like oh i remember when i enjoyed food or i remember when i enjoyed this or that um and i think that that's something that makes this character a far more tragic portrayal of you know uh vampires or vampires uh than some of the other vampire films i've seen or vampire media in general well yeah and i mean he's he's dracula right so when you think of like you know you know, props to Gary Oldman, but when you think of that performance of Dracula and like, you know, just the over the topness of like, he's a tragic figure, but like, you know, that bothers going into the whole like him being like finding him the dead, uh, his dead, you know, wife or whatever, lover, and then like stabbing across and blood is coming out of it. Like, I know it's Francis Borgabola. Like, don't get me wrong, I dig that movie a lot. Uh, but yeah, like this movie just does it all effortlessly with its with because uh, of Kinski and Herzog. I mean, you know, just nailing exactly what they wanted to get across. Uh, and you don't need you don't need um, exposition. You don't need him being like, oh, for like you said, for hundreds of years I've been here, you know, waiting. Like whatever, man. Like just show it. Like you're. This is a film we're not in the silent era anymore. There doesn't have to be like text, you know, inserts to like for dialogue and stuff. Just, just get on with it. And it does it, uh, amazingly. And then, yeah, the tragicness of, of the character, he, he, yeah, he's not like, it's not like Dracula dead and loving that, you know, he's just like, he's just scraping by and then yeah he sees that glimmer of love or like he's like oh wow you really you know you love her and like oh i remember love you know it's like uh it makes it so much more relatable to me anyway because dracula is such like a such like a iconic but like unreachable impenetrable character to me like right from when i read that book for the first time and 
you don't really get anything from the perspective of Dracula in the original book. It's all from like journal entries from the other characters. And mm-hmm. so I feel like that's keeping with the spirit of even that, like this movie keeps with that. It's kind of like, yeah, you're watching Dracula and, and stuff, but it's more, you're more watching other people play off of him and him play off of other people. Um, which I guess still makes him a bit impenetrable, but I don't know. I, I connected way more with this, with this, uh, with this guy, with Klaus Kinski and it's crazy makeup. Um, than then other, yeah, other portrayals. I think also, again, it kind of goes hand in hand with Herzog's documentary kind of feel to uh, approach to the entire movie. Cause again, like, if you have that sort of, you know, fly on the wall style of showing you rather than telling you, well, if you then have this like over the top portrayal, it just the entire thing wouldn't jive nearly as well as it does. And, you know, I would say going back to sort of the dreamlike quality of the movie, the amount of just, I don't know, I guess like how textured the world is and how rich the interactions are through more about the physicality of what people are doing rather than telling you it all goes hand in hand for an experience that is not even longer. At least the English version I watched isn't longer than an hour and 50 minutes. And yet it feels like you are going on literally the journey that Jonathan's going on at a certain point. And, you know, to take it back for one second, just to that surreal kind of quality before you even get to castle uh, to uh, Transylvania and go to the castle and all these things, like just the way in which, they portray Jonathan's journey through the mountains and just the way it captures that landscape. Like there's one moment where when he's, you know, trekking through the mountains, he just like sits down and sits on a rock and it kind of just does this slow pan of the, what I would assume is very Alp like. Right. And I think that just moments like that, that feel almost like a planet earth documentary or something like that. Again, you're looking at something that is completely grounded and just gorgeous to this point that, it really like almost feels kind of like an out of body experience. It feels otherworldly kind of right. Cause yeah. obviously it's something that you don't see all the time. And then getting into the more fantastical elements of Dracula and the effect that he has and the death and destruction that he spreads throughout the course of the movie. And yet you almost see no action in the movie action from the sense of like him actually sucking somebody's blood or, you know, seeing people succumb to the plague this real dreamlike sense of reality, whether it be the setting or seeing the ramifications for actions and not seeing the action, like it just kind of permeates throughout the entire movie that you're like, oh, something's happening, but I'm only seeing the ramifications of it. I'm not seeing the actual act. And I find that to be far more terrifying, right? Yeah. I mean, that's like a documentary too. It's like you're watching watching snippets of like whatever subject you're watching's life right it's not like it's not like here's every second of every hour you know that that whatever we're doing it on cheetahs or whatever right you're watching the (laughs) cheetah hunt you're watching the cheetah like caring for its young um and it's yeah like you know you don't see when when jonathan wakes up after falling asleep uh by the fireplace there you know it's it's you see the you see the two little bites on his neck, but we never saw you know him like digging in and you know whatever. It's not necessary, right? Every other vampire movie you watch that you watch the uh, here's the slow shot of like the teeth you know elongated 
whatever like it's just been it's such a trope uh yeah and i think that's really special that's like a good point you bring up but i think herzog is a director too like that when he is making that trip through the mountains and if the camera does just pan up like that like he, he has this sense of like what kind of the viewer wants or like what you would do in that environment like if you were there you would kind of just be like wow you know like look 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 around me right and i always find like even stuff like bad lieutenant if you've seen that that herzog has done right it's the shots of the iguana on the road and just like you're just like what the what the hell is going on and, and it's awesome because it's just so old and you don't expect movies to do that to just kind of like sit quietly in the scene and just be there you know it's always like on to the next thing jump cut jump cut um which well, like you had said it feels like a journal entry coming to life instead of just showing us like showing us an image and then having you know narration play over it in the movie right it's far more effective just to essentially show us and then realizing okay obviously through the language of this movie you're realizing okay this is his experience this is him marveling at whether it be his perception of the castle or of the mountains and whatnot right and it's far more effective in that because you know all you can hear is just the nature if you will and that ends up being far more effective than him being like Yes, this is the second day I've been <laughs> traipsing through the like some kind of uh, bullshit like that that you've seen in so many movies. But in this movie, I find that just putting you in a space and letting you kind of like soak it in ends up being far more effective. And like you've said, you know, it it goes with overall like it plays, I think, to Herzog's strengths. Right. Again, I'm not super versed in Herzog, but like overall, I think from a directorial standpoint, it works in a big way. Yeah. And, uh, but, you know, I could have used a few Keanu Reeves, horrible <laughs> journal entry, you know? <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, absolutely. And, uh, and then also like we were touching upon earlier, like making, making the vampire, like just this kind of, personified representation of disease and sickness and the plague and i mean that was yeah he's on that boat with the rats and he kind of which i know if you if you did some research too i'm sure you came out about like how poorly the animals were treated making this film like uh i don't even really want to get into it it's like bad so shame on you herzog what are you doing man yeah that was that was one of the things where you always you know Without getting into it, it's kind of like when you go back and look at older films, you realize like some of the things that were probably acceptable back in the day and it kind of bums you out. Um, well, it's like yeah, Milo you know. and Otis, right? That, oh, geez. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, <laughs> The podcast takes a darker turn. Uh, yeah. Well, that's the thing is like it's, it's a children's movie and yet, you know, so yeah. I mean, I mean, there's a few things going on there with that stuff. It's also like the root of it. You know, uh, I, I maybe you know more about this than I do, but it sucks because I really like Nosferatu, the look of the character, everything about it in the original and this one. However, I'm aware that it is a racist portrayal of like a Jewish person and kind of ruins it, obviously. That's abhorrent. That's 
ridiculous, right? So, and I don't know exactly what went into the original design, if that's really what was the, what was trying to be portrayed by that. Uh, I just know that anti-Semitism was like coming up, you know, it wasn't just Hitler. It was, sorry, I'm getting crazy heavy on this, but, but like <laughs> for real, like, you know, it's problematic. A lot of things are when I, when I was researching and found all the stuff about what they did to the rats, you know, I was just like, Oh man, like, I don't know if I can watch this again. Uh, cause I just think rats are awesome. I love all animals. So, uh, yeah. But I think that you raise a good point though. Right. And if anything, having that, cause I had heard that before I had seen this film just randomly, I guess, but like, I don't know. Not to say that like the film benefits from it, because obviously you would never want anything like that to happen. But just having that knowledge in the back of your head while you're watching this movie or while I was watching it, like it just made it so much more of a darker viewing. And right, you know, to I, the film works whether you know that or not. But yeah. like it just it furthermore adds to the fact that you're not seeing a great deal of again, like I said earlier, the the action or the moments where violence or something is happening. And yet you're seeing the ramifications of what comes from it. Right. And I think that what I was most surprised by with this portrayal of, you know, Nosferatu and Dracula, but worked for me the most was that this is less of like a monster movie, right? A traditional monster depiction of Dracula other than, you know, how he overtly looks. Right. I think that, it being devoid of a lot of the staples of a traditional, whether it be universal or otherwise, portrayal of monsters, it's more in focusing on the fact that it's a force to be reckoned with, mm. uh, which I found to be f- frightening in a way that I've never necessarily associated with Dracula. Again, that's my sort of limited uh, experience with vampire movies, but it really worked for me in a way that I found to be fundamentally disturbing, but also like furthermore it's influenced by Herzog's sort of just matter of fact capturing of events that are happening. Right. Because like you said, when Nosferatu comes over on the boat, he brings the plague with him and the plague spreads through these cities or through the city. And you don't have to like spend a great deal of time showing us the ramifications immediately. Right. You see the rats of course, but you don't have to like get 20 minutes of people you know, having flu-like symptoms and then boils and then all these things, right? It it happens very matter-of-factly and almost like like next moment it just occurs, right? And I think that that's when his, uh, his servant, if you will, uh, was named Renfield, right? Played by Roland Toper. Yeah. Like when he breaks out of prison and he's essentially a follower that's under the influence of Dracula. But of course, as soon as he reunites, we see that the master cares not for the, uh, the peasant or the uh, servant. And, you know, when he runs out of that prison and we've kind of seen glimmers of what the city looks like, we've seen coffins popping up. We've seen less people out, but when he runs out into the street and he's like elated that he's escaped, he's tricked one of the, you know, one of three seemingly police officers in the entire town. He's tricked him into locking him in the cell and then escaping. And then all of a sudden, when he looks around and sees the coffins lining the streets, and he kind of like starts whimpering. And then, of course, he does that horrific laugh of his. Right. But like his reaction to realizing what is happening, I think, is probably one of the most disturbing parts of the movie because he's like, 
elated and then immediately realizes, oh, all these people are dying. Yeah. Uh, and not that he necessarily gives a shit, but it's just seeing somebody's genuine reaction to what's happening and then immediately understanding what's happening. Like that is a sort of a surreal change in, I don't know, emotions that kind of turns on a dime. And then of course he scurries away to do God knows what. Yeah. Um, but I just find that like, again, seeing the ramifications of what is going on, but not feeling like you have to explain it past what he has kind of portrayed already. I just found that to be really powerful or effective rather than, again, like I'd said, sort of just this slow monotonous kind of build up to what we know is going to happen, showing us the dramatic end result right away. I find to be far more effective. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and like, apart from that laugh, he is good. And I love that character in the story uh, because, you know, all he wants is, you know, to, to you know, be, I don't know, you know, whatever he thinks he wants, like be, become his like best friend or, you know, like he's under the, under the sway of him. Um, and yeah, like, I think apart from the animal, the real world, like treatment of the animals there, it really is um kind of like there's just this crazy majesty to like you know even a, i think it's from a documentary but that shot of the bat flying in slow motion and the bat I mean, yeah, it's from some science documentary yeah and like coming the bat coming into lucy's room and like just kind of like clawing her uh, its way up uh, her drapes and stuff which we haven't really talked about her um she's like awesome um i mean yeah like she does so much with so little like that face like you know her uh is it yeah it's a isabel uh a johnny a johnny a johnny johnny um yeah like her her like she can say like a million words with just her facial expression she's so good at like being you know i wouldn't call her a scream queen but i guess you could right well, again, I think that her performance, again, perfectly is in line. This is the thing about this movie that I keep coming back to and why I'm definitely going to revisit it uh, again after maybe I've experienced a few more vampire movies just for better comparison and whatnot. But, you know, every part of this movie, it speaks to a lot of the sort of visual storytelling of the movie and how that is this movie's strength, I think. And it comes through in the performances. And, you know, some people might say, well, you know, there aren't a lot of, you know, grandiose dialogue or monologue moments, but you don't have to in a movie like this because it would feel out of place. And her performance specifically, it's like it's her reaction to things that feels, I suppose, her reactions are those kind of those big dialogue-esque moments in that she just shows so much on her face to everything. And it really does, I think, complement this much quieter take on Dracula, right? And one of the best moments of the film, I think, is when, I believe it's when Dracula is going to bite Jonathan and she screams out no, and somehow Dracula hears that, right? And again, that kind of speaks to this kind of strange dreamlike sense. How does this work? How far does his influence reach? Is there somebody else that has some type of powers potentially? But her ability to do that and just like the genuine look of fear that she has on her face translates in a way that you would think she's in the room with them. Mm -hmm. um, and again, she's, you know, I think he, I think Jonathan at one point says it took him a month to get to the castle and she's a month away. Yeah. 
And yet she might as well be in the room with them. And it plays that way just through her performance and everything. And, you know, throughout the entire movie, she's able, like you had said, to do so much with so little in terms of, you know, not having this very, uh, you know, dialogue heavy performance. But I think that it's more just about the physicality and that everything she does is memorable, even if she's not necessarily doing a lot throughout, you know, the first half of the film, if you will. Yeah, and it's, it's almost like the most truly silent film-esque, you know, uh, performance. It's like, uh, because they were very much about that theatricality and having to, like, go way overdo your expressions and your movements and stuff because you didn't have, you know, you, you move your mouth, your lips, but nobody's hearing what you're saying, right? Um, now, hold on a minute here. I just want to know... I'm sure that people do too, unless you've you've spoken about it a lot uh, on the podcast or elsewhere. Um, so, what what vampire movies or, or media have you uh, seen? So, I've seen Blade, the Blade series. I've seen obviously the original uh, Dracula. Yeah, uh, I think it was Daybreakers. I mean, obviously, I've seen Nosferatu, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I haven't seen like Bram Stoker's Dracula, which I really want to see. Um, and you know, whatever else I have missed, I'm, I obviously haven't read, I, not obviously, but I haven't read the novel. Um, have you, I think I, I think I tried the BBC. There was like a Dracula BBC miniseries they did recently yeah. or within the last five years. Was it, did you watch that? It's good. I haven't seen oh, okay, it. Okay. Um, but I'm just trying to think of like the most recent or the biggest names. Well, like uh, I have listened to the Dracula 2000 soundtrack a ridiculous <laughs> amount of times. Oh. Have not seen the movie. You've listened to the soundtrack. You haven't seen the movie. My buddy and I have the. This is a random J fact. I have a burnt CD of the soundtrack that a buddy made for me in middle school, and I still listen to that in my whip because that soundtrack. Bends. What is on that soundtrack? I've seen the movie, but I don't remember. Oh shit! Now I got to bring it up. I know there's some Power Man. Okay. Five thousand. Okay. All that. Uh, let's see. But you're gonna say it's better than the Blade soundtrack? Uh, for sure. Did not say oh, okay. that. But it still is a banger. It's a banger. It's, all right. It's a banger. Right, right on. Well, I mean, I got no no beef with you because you've seen Blade, so we're good there. Uh, I mean, if I, while I'm looking this up and I'm on my mini my mini vampire uh, media tangent, what are what are like a couple of others? that you uh, have enjoyed vampire-wise. Okay. And then I can read you a couple of a couple of hot tracks off the Dracula 2000 soundtrack. Amazing. I would love that. Um, I'm a big connoisseur of, of that period of time movie soundtracks. Uh, New metal soundtracks. Yes, bang. yes. Um, well, there is, there's, a, there's a quasi-silent film. It does have actual... Um, you know, audio and like dialogue in it, but it's just called Vampire. It's by, um, it's, it's, there was a criterion release. It's by, wow. I'm, I have seen that. That's where there's a traveler that stops at a hotel. Yeah. 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 And there's, yes, uh, I've the, seen that one. The guy with the scythe. Yeah. Yeah. That movie's dope. Um, I mean, you, you, you've seen Lost Boys, right? Yes, I have seen Lost Boys. Okay, so it sounds like I I have seen more vampire. I think I've seen more modern vampire films than I have, you know, maybe more of the, uh, 
I don't know if classical is yeah. <laughs> is nineties, early two thousands. If you will, you, you've seen Interview with the Vampire. I have not. That's one that's on my list. Well, based on what you've said, you may not dig it because it is a lot of like, look at us, we're vampires, and let's talk about everything. And like, it's you know, Anne Rice will like spend in her books like four pages describing like a, the the glimmer on a chandelier type thing. So, uh, gotcha. I don't, but I think it's really awesome that movie so i would check that out i think it's really it also does things that you mentioned you liked about this movie uh really well so i would definitely check that out uh i mean those are kind of the major ones i mean well you know like uh, from dust till dawn is like a very guilty pleasure but I still haven't seen that. I have the collection for some reason. Not, I've never watched any of those. It's not good, but like it's fun. No, <laughs> like I just I'm sorry. Like yeah, I just don't like it that much, but it's it's good. Uh, John John Carpenter's Vampires is horrible, and I'm I've heard. I, see, that's one of the, again. Like that's one of those movies that I've heard. Half of the people I've talked to said it's trash. The other half have said it, it's like guilty pleasure viewing. So, I'm, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm, I think as people that listen know, I'm pretty open to checking out anything at least once. So I'll still uh, I'll still add the bad ones to my list, but 30, I can't make any promises when I'll get to it. Okay, yeah. Well, if you don't get to that one, you're not missing much. But 30, <laughs> 30 Days a Night is like a fun, stupid one. Yeah. I mean, but that one rips. Yeah. Like I'm of two minds. Like I don't really like it's weird because what I like about this Klaus Kinski's portrayal of Nosferatu and this is the more animalistic side, but yeah, it is still very much like you can see a person in there. Whereas like mm-hmm. usually in vampire media, I'm kind of bothered by just feral, uh, animalistic monsters that are vampires like in 30 days a night, because I'm kind of like, these could have been zombies. These could have been anything else. That's what I was going to say is why something like 30 Days to Night, which is a vampire movie, but when I'm talking generally about them, it doesn't necessarily always come to mind because it feels very informed by, what, 28 Days Later, mm-hmm. Dawn of the Dead yeah. remake like of that era, which is not a knock against it. But it for me, when I mention vampire media, that's something that I probably wouldn't include, even if it is technically just because of the portrayal is so foreign to what I would consider to be traditional yeah. vampire media, if you will. But, it, uh, but let me let me read off a couple of uh, these banger uh, tracks from the Dracula 2000 soundtrack. Uh, Ultra Mega from Power Man 5000. Uh, we have uh, <laughs> A Welcome Burden by Disturbed. Metro by System of a Down. Uh, You've got, let's see, Ostego Undead from Static X. You've got some Taproot, some... Uh, Swan Dive, Head P.E., and some Pantera, just to name a few. But that soundtrack fucking bangs and is well worth checking out. Wow, I can't believe I forgot that, like, well, I guess I can't believe. If you see the movie, it's, yeah. I got a lot of catching up to do with my vampire media. But um, let's get back to Lucy for a second, because I think that she gives such a great multi-layered performance with saying so little, right? We've kind of said that a lot of it is through the physicality of her performance. Um, but a lot of it is kind of based upon just her reaction to things, right? I think that the last act of the film, you know, before she makes that ultimate sacrifice to save everybody essentially, right? Is her just doing basically a tour 
throughout the city, right? Again, talking to Herzog's sensibilities and leading us through an environment rather than having a lot of these sort of contrived interactions or sort of shots of a cityscape, if you will, right? It's her running through the streets that essentially it seems like they've been doing nothing but funeral processions mm-hmm. the entire time. Uh, and her running up and like begging people to listen to her that she knows what's going on and nobody will listen to her, right? And I think at the other t- side of things, like it's not um, it's not Herzog's mistake to have it being like, a female trying to inform a large male audience about what is happening. And, you know, they're casting her aside as being hysterical or something of that nature. And what I really like about that though, is that it furthermore just reinforces not only is she the authority in what is happening, but is being ignored by the masses who essentially are simpletons in this matter because they think they know better. And of course they don't, but also it fuels that dreamlike sense of reality, right? Where she sees that the plague has gotten so bad that people are like dancing in the streets and they're doing all of this kind of like, I think she comes to a table and at one point like, they say they're doing the last supper. Yeah. Right? I think that's what they say. And, you know, that's one of the most chilling scenes of the entire movie. Yeah. And probably, you know, that's an all time moment for me, I think, because they're so matter of fact about yeah. it. They're sitting down in the middle of the street. They're having a meal that does not look unlike the meal that Dracula served to Jonathan at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. And then, I don't know, 10 seconds after that interaction, we see the table and it's swarming with rats all of a sudden. And it just kind of shows again, like, here is the immediate consequence of what's happening. You don't need to see it play out. You just need to see the ramifications of it. And that ends up being not only more frightening, but more powerful, I find, and makes it a, you know, a standout moment to the movie. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that that scene. Uh, yeah, I still just randomly will think about that, especially like I mean, dealing with a real life plague as we as we are still. You know? Yeah, and more coming. So it's just like, you know, uh, but yeah, it's like it, it really it really does so much with so little and yet it isn't so little because like it is showing everything. It's not like just, you know, there's a shit ton of rats on screen. <laughs> like, you know, like, like <laughs> crazy. Like, I don't know if I've ever seen that many rats on screen before. So, uh, it's like plague tale up in here. Anyway, I don't know if you, but, uh, yeah. So, yeah it's just magical like i really would describe this movie as magic like it is just pure gothic magic to me like it's it's in a class of its own i like it more than the original uh in so many ways it just appeals more to my you know sensibilities i suppose of of what i dig like i'm a big lynch guy and i like the dream like surreal element of his work and uh kind of like the absurdity and the like focus on quieter moments and something that other filmmakers or other uh other projects would just not even bother taking time to like draw attention to or uh include and you know what is like yeah it's a it's a longer movie but it's not like that long um it's not like three hours so and by the time you get to jonathan you know becoming a vampire and being in that house and they're like putting the salt around them or whatever, walking <laughs> there like, and, you know, and like that, you, you almost feel like you, yeah, like you said earlier, you're on, you've been on this crazy journey with them. Uh, 
and it's kind of like is this the same movie like oh that's yeah that's jonathan and now he's like this and it's just some subtle makeup he just looks pale with dark circles around his eyes and stuff right but you 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 really do feel like wow like i've been through some shit i've seen jonathan go through some shit uh when you get around to watching the, if you watch the uh francis ford coppola's uh dracula keanu reeves's arc of that like traumatized person is just laughable because it's just um he just has gray hair one day he wakes up with gray hair and then he's you know just kind of like helplessly around while all the people are fighting dracula and yeah anyway it's like the antithesis of this movie but i love the ending of this movie because what it present you know again it is the type of ending that works because it's been building and it's consistent with the direction that Herzog has gone with the entire film and the sensibilities of it, right? Because it gets to the end where, you know, the doctor, uh, I believe Van Helsing, you know, what does he do? He drives a stake through the heart of, you know, Nosferatu and whatnot to make sure that he's really dead because, you know, what I failed to mention earlier is that essentially uh, Nosferatu is death is a result of being far too horny and <laughs> goes up to get Lucy and uh but basically you know fawning over her she makes that ultimate sacrifice where essentially allows him to you know suck her blood and you know quote unquote find his the true love that he's been looking for and of course he ends up staying there past uh night wakes up or doesn't wake up but is still awake during uh when the sun rises and essentially you know Vampires and Sunlight is not a combination that mixes well or has a uh, happy outcome for a vampire. And so, of course, he dies. But then Van uh, Van Helsing comes downstairs and they view him as what? Being a murderer because they don't believe in vampires, Mm -hmm. right? And then the constable has this talk with, I don't even know who he is. Is he even a city worker? He's just like some guy that's there in the house. And he's like, well, you need to take him to prison or somebody needs to take him to jail. And the old man's like, well... There's no policeman alive to take him to jail. He's like, well, you take him to jail then and yeah. let the jailer take care of him. And he's like, well, the jailer's dead. There's nobody there to watch yeah, him. you're like, hanging up it, the ship that's sinking, man. Like, yeah. Exactly. I mean, it, it comes across initially as sort of a gag almost. I kind of took it as like, oh, everybody that is in a position of power is dead because of the plague. But then when that sort of sinks in, it's behind the scenes of what we've been seeing like, again, it snaps right back to this very sinister tone of the entire movie that we haven't had to have a great deal of exposition being like, oh, now the mayor's dead. Now the cops are dead. Now the jailer. Now the executioner's dead. Like, it's just a matter of fact. Oh, all these people are dead. Yeah. And you haven't had to see it. But I think that knowing that a society has crumbled only once it's being told to you rather than being shown periodically, like, that's such a fundamentally scary thing that it's like that's how quickly something can happen or that's how slow i suppose back in the day news traveled right the fact that this guy that is there that's supposedly the last constable in the town doesn't even realize that all of the pillars of their town and society Mm -hmm. are gone and realizing at that moment it it is you know laughable for a moment and then you realize like what does that mean for anybody that's left there oh probably nothing like they're all going to now succumb to the same fate and i think that you know getting to that finish line without doing the actual journey is much more immediate 
and it's like having the rug pulled out from under you and that is far more effective i find yeah and it's a good way of just getting more into the time in which the piece is set right like stuff really did move at a slower pace and how would you know i mean like you're a plague is going on you have to actively avoid like interaction you don't well they don't even really know advanced medicine at that time so they don't even really understand what the hell is going on um yeah it's just it's it's feels so authentic and like so many elements of this movie just feel real and it's like you're you're, it's like yep uh i know that's klaus kinski but like no that's that's a that's maserati right there like that's not (laughs) even though i know it's makeup even though you know everything it's like and I think the, the, the setting and the, the use of like real locations and everything like that really, really help with that because how many times is like, even in the universal Dracula, like that castle, just the way it looks. And this is more like an actual, like, no, like real European castles were like, you know, some were kind of small, like room wise in terms of like what you think, oh, it's white. It's not like just like gray stone or like huge archways. Like they are there, but like it's a lot more kind of like, I don't know, claustrophobic. And uh, this is a random aside, but I, in college, uh, missed picking an elective on time. And I had the last, I had to pick like what wasn't full. And what wasn't full was vampires and film and literature. And uh, I was like, that's a sick yeah class. i was like hell yeah i'm gonna do this <laughs> and the prof was uh actually like romanian and uh like was just like oh here's a slideshow of like when i visited vlad tp's castle and like yeah it looked it looked kind of like what what's in this movie it was like white paint uh inside and like just smaller rooms and not really what you'd expect or whatever Am I, is it Romania or Hungary? Anyway, whatever. She was from. I thought it, I thought it was Romania. Yeah, she's like actually from there, and so that was a trip. She may have been. That's awesome. May have been a vampire. My class <laughs> evening, so I don't know. Um. Anyway, dope class. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's just not. It's it's the antithesis of the Universal Dracula of the everything else that you've would think of uh when you think of dracula but you know in some ways the original is its own thing too even though it's trying to be dracula it couldn't because of the the rights and so i don't know like is there such a weird it's so unique as a remake because it is doing what the original thing did but it's also doing more because like I said, that the, the rights had become public domain. And so it's just like every level, every every kind of way you want to look at this film, the performances, the setting, the tone, the editing, uh, the camera work, uh, everything is just like dreamlike surreal. And it's just, yeah, it's, it's magical. Well, I think it's probably one of the very rare remakes, right? In that the amount of time that passes between the original and the remake is probably one of the most substantial gaps in time, right? If you think about it from, what is it, from 22 to 79, think about the innovations in filmmaking in general that even if you were, you know, I'm sure there maybe are a couple of shots that are remade from the original, but 
you know, just overall the fundamental changes in just the approach of filmmaking. But at the same time, though, when you say that, it's the type of thing that, you know, it feels like it's still at least going in a direction that doesn't necessarily feel like it's just a complete shot for shot, which we mentioned earlier. Um, it really does have the benefit of taking those different elements visually from the original film and expanding on them in a way that still feels very visual focused. And, you know, like we'd said, it's very um, the physicality more so than, again, sort of more of the standard uh, Dracula performances or portrayals we've seen. But they feel at home, even if maybe this is somewhat even of a quieter film than the original in some regards, you know, <laughs> other than, <laughs> you know, the original being literally uh, a silent film yeah. uh, in terms of, I guess that was one thing I was surprised by as well is just that, you know, we have maybe two or three moments of Nosferatu just being like very brooding and creepy and just standing there and then walking towards people slowly. But there was not an overabundance of that. And I think that that could have potentially been a downfall of this being a remake, right? Is that maybe gleaming a little more from some of the hammer portrayals of Dracula or, you know, not to say that those are not, those don't have their own merit, right? Because those are plenty fun and enjoyable in their own way. But like we could have had a film that was longer that was just focusing on more moments like that of, oh, there's a creepy monster in the corner that you just realized and now it's going to walk towards you in a brooding manner. But really, you know, Herzog channels the energy of the original using his own, you know, filmmaking style in a way that complements it mm -hmm. rather than feeling like, oh, I'm just going to do what they did but, you know, with sound and in color. Um, and I think that that's always something that I appreciate, again, you know, like you had said earlier about remakes in general, is that people that are, you know, paying more of a homage or making more of a homage to the original rather than just being like, hey, let's do that, but in HD or with, you know, the a better, more realized way to capture the, uh, the monster magic of that scene, if you will. Yeah, and I think like, you, you can't really you can't really fake um i don't know like respect like i feel like it's so clear that every every well Herzog especially like really respects the hell out of the original um Absolutely. i think going back to the initial question you asked about the remakes i guess i would add that as well as like there does have to be and i mean this sounds like a very basic thing to say but you know, you should you should get the impression that like whoever is doing it uh, is respects the original and like you know isn't doing it for the sake of just like you know doing it. Uh, which I think some remakes, whether it's studio input or just things not working out, you know, day to day on set or or whatever, I got you get this feeling like they're just going through the motion of it, and I think. Mm -hmm. um, one of the examples of that, I guess it's not that recent. It's a while ago, but like that um, Matt Reeves version of Let the Right One In, Let Me In. Uh, oh, yeah. Where I feel like it's, you know, it's competently made and like you can tell he probably like obviously loves the original or whatever, but I don't know. There's just something about it that just feels like you're just like, yeah, and like what? Okay, mm -hmm. like why are you? You know, I get it. You're just you're just um, 
doing this for like English audiences or whatever and, you know, to, to make money. And- Which is not, uh, you know, that's one of those things too, especially when you're talking about remaking a foreign film for an American audience. If you're going to go the distance, I would say a comparable uh, comparison, it's a different genre, but like that, uh, that film, The Guilty, that Jake Gyllenhaal did for Netflix, basically, is a remake of a Danish movie. And I remember watching that and I had the reaction that you just had with Let Me In. It's like, okay, and like, why did you do this other than to appease an audience that can't deal with subtitles for whatever, you know, bullshit reasons they come up with? They don't like to read or whatever. But it's like, if you're going to remake a film specifically, or more specifically in terms of like a foreign film to a English speaking audience or another, you know, audience like it can't just be that, oh, I'm going to make this more palatable because this isn't a language that they speak. That can't be the basis for why you're doing it. And it is furthermore, if you're just going to do that and then make it shot for shot, you even have less validity for why you're doing it in the first place. I find yeah. like, again, it needs to be resembling of the original film, but at the same time, it can't just be that it needs to have your own spin, your own take you taking a swing that, you know, maybe people like you and I want to see bigger, drastical swings, but you have to take some attempt at deviating because if you don't make that deviation from, you know, the core blueprint, then you end up with kind of a shrug like, okay, you did that. And what was the purpose of that other than some of the things we've mentioned? Yeah, it just feels like this Frankenstein kind of thing. That's just, but, but it is interesting when it's like this, you know, the many iterations of Dracula, Let the Right One In, Let Me In, those are based on novels. The novel becomes a film, and then somebody remakes the film, you know? Not really looking toward the novel or the source material that is inherently important to the original. So it's like, why would you not, you know, I just don't understand why you're not playing with both of those things. You're not, you're just looking at, Oh, people love this film, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna. What, what was good about that film? Okay, boom. Here's the this minute mark. We're gonna do this, and we're gonna have that scene, and you know, whatever. Um, for the record, I don't think Let Me In's like a terrible movie or anything. It's just, it's like, uh, it's like, it's like that old boy with Josh Brolin. It's just like, what the <laughs> yeah. fuck? Are, what are we doing? Like, why? Right? Why? Why do you yeah. Amer- and I think Let Me In is correct me if I'm wrong, but they they move it to America, yeah. Like it's it takes place in America. Yeah. It's not no longer Sweden. That's another dope vampire movie if you've never seen the original. Um, no, I definitely have. That was that's probably <laughs> you know the further we've talked about <laughs> vampire movies, I'm like, oh, I've actually seen more than I think I actually have. I guess I was thinking of like some of the classics that you've mentioned that maybe I hadn't seen. Uh, like Interview with the Vampire yeah. again, Bram Stoker's uh, Dracula and whatnot. But yeah, you know, again, I didn't think Let Me In was like a terrible movie, but at the same time, I would almost rather, <laughs> this is the thing, I would rather that the remake, a remake, operate in one of two realms, right? This is either a really great remake or this is laughably bad, like uh, the Nightmare on Elm Street 2010 remake, yeah. right? It's the type of thing where it's like, and that's a whole other podcast, but just the idea that like, oh, you so badly fumbled the ball on this that like I can laugh at this with my buddies. But at the yeah. same time, when I, I get, I think the older I get, I get more annoyed by movies that are kind of just a shrug Yeah, where I'm just like, 
well, I can't even get a good story out of this because it's not even worth really mentioning. Even if it was, you know, so it, it competently made, at the end of the day, I would rather have a movie that I can recommend to people based off of being, you know, really well done and something that is a standout or something that's so bad when you come back from the bar at 2 a.m. and it's on Netflix, you can't not throw it on to laugh at for 40 minutes before you pass out or whatever. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, uh, the, yeah, I think like, going off what you said there like great art to me is like and i I actually had this conversation i just went on vacation with my um with my brother-in-law it's like great art the, the art that we respect like is inherently flawed it's just like here's everything you know like nothing and no one is perfect and to have like glaring you know continuity issues or like you know, even this movie, it's not perfect. Like there's things that, you know, just don't, that, you know, could have been done differently or, you know, like as majestic as that slow motion bat shot is like, you can hella tell it's from like a documentary and it's, not, you know what I mean? Like it's not of the same, you know, <laughs> like film uh, that it's even shot at, you know, everything. So yeah i mean but that's that's like the thing is like just do it to the most you can because even if it's bad like no one can come at you and be like you know you weren't this is the that you weren't trying or you weren't um taking like a risk or whatever and i just like i mean it's like when we talk about games and indie games in particular and stuff like you're just it's so much cooler if they're just swinging for the for, for the you know for the fence, whatever that saying is, look bad with the sayings, you know. But no, you got it right. I mean, a flawed, uh, a flawed swing for the fences is better than something that's like, yeah, it competently delivers something that you've seen in the last ten games you've played or the last ten movies you've seen, right? Which is the fatigue we're having right now with like a lot of this big budget stuff. And I mean, yeah. I I hate to say it's new because Hollywood has just been like up its own ass for so long, just re regurgitating things right Right. uh remakes are not new you know i mean look at the ones from the 70s like yeah so yeah exactly it's just like do do something with it like if you're gonna actually go and redo a story do something with it don't just don't just uh you know offer up snippets that are like you know pieced together more i don't know effectively or like things like that which i think is what let me in is uh yeah i just don't see the point and it's fine like some people do want some people will love something that's like in a different language and then love an american remake equally as much because it's just they love the the material and they love the characters that much and they just want to see more of it right Mm-hmm. And I do have things where I feel I'm kind of like that. Like I will always watch a movie with Michael Myers in it, you know, the, yeah. not the comedian. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Like I'm always going to be down. Like, do I want to see Halloween ends? No. Am I gonna? Yeah. Like, you know, and I mean, that's a sequel, but it's also, you know, and then you got the, yeah, you got these things like, you know, that, that thing prequel, right. With Mary Elizabeth and, and these weird like uh uh what, what's the term uh, pre-sequel yeah like a, you know like or like a remake like a, a re 
reboot reboot yeah exactly like these it's just and and then on top of you know i feel like in this post dead world deadpool world of like everything being so meta now in film uh who knows you know it's i'm kind of scared <laughs> in terms of like what <laughs> remakes are going to offer us but i'm also excited because it's there is still cool stuff happening like that evil dead remake rips right like i yeah. And it's totally different and it's totally the same. Like you watch that movie and I get the same kind of feeling or like, you know, Texas Chainsaw, the Platinum Dunes one. It's not perfect, but it like tries, it does its thing. Friday the 13th one, like I'm kind of an apologist for that movie. I kind of dig it. I don't know why. Again, yeah. but like Jason, like running through tunnels, he's got like, let's say he's, he's his mastermind with, to- you know, he's like a crazed survivalist almost yeah he's he's bear gorillas or whatever like it's just like what's going on and that's cool like do that like why not it's gonna piss people off but i think all great art is gonna do that it's gonna piss people off it's gonna make it's gonna provoke a stronger reaction and if you can do that in a remake where people are already familiar with like so much of what you're gonna show them that's really cool uh to me perfectly put and i totally agree with you hell yeah Um, i yeah i mean that's the thing right is that the possibilities are endless and we're gonna get both right we're gonna get these things that it's kind of like a shrug but then the ones that are people taking you know those swings and those risks and taking it in a new direction that nobody could ever see coming no matter how big you know i guess i shouldn't even say like a big swing just trying something new is something that I think is going to age far better than people that are going to make these remakes that end up being kind of just a shrug, right? Things like Psycho or even Let Me In, right? I, I, you know, the Psycho one, maybe a little less so, but just in terms of like, there are going to be those remakes that it's like, yeah, they're not terrible movies, but you're not going to bring them up outside of like, oh, I might've seen that or, you know, I've seen that, but I would prefer something that's more like, you know, a b or c uh better examples of people that tried something a little bit different but yeah. uh like i like i said at the beginning of the episode i appreciate you giving me a chance to finally dive into uh nosferatu the vampire because it's one that's been on my list for quite a while and uh i think that it's inspired me to you know go back and watch some of those other vampire movies that i missed yeah they're a cool like i said they're a cool monster because it's really i feel like uh well, I guess zombies are as well. It's just they're they're not used as such in a in a like Romero sense, where like he's using them as kind of like a a way of like looking at other things in society and stuff. And I think vampires can be that very easily in the human condition. And uh, as as this movie does, like other other major things like sickness and death and you know disease and. Uh, just things out day to day were very, I mean, but that's horror, I guess, in general. But, you know, werewolves, ghosts, things like that. And maybe not ghosts, because those Japanese ghost movies are pretty fucking crazy, man. But, uh, <laughs> but like, yeah, I don't know. I think vampires are a cool monster. I'm always like Team Vampire for that reason, just because there's so much you can do. It's like human, you know, characters, right? I mean, like, human beings or not you can't put them in a box it's you never know what you're gonna get and uh oh shit now i'm thinking of dog soldiers though and that's werewolves and that's pretty off anyway thank you that's that's another banger (laughs) we just keep this is the thing when i'm trying when we're trying to like 
wrap a conversation. We inevitably, you know, when I have great guests like yourself on, it's like we end up talking about, you know, 10 or 15 other movies that we love for various reasons. And it's the type of thing where it's just like, oh, shit. Not only has he mentioned five movies that I need to watch, but he's mentioned five that I need to go back and rewatch because I haven't watched them in so long. And Dog Soldiers is definitely one of those. But uh, I think I might wait because they're going to do a 4K remaster of that fairly soon. Oh, I cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, I mean, I, I appreciate you having me on. It's always great because, uh, yeah, like in-depth discussion of, of horror needs to keep happening because so often it gets labeled as this stupid genre or whatever that's just like about, you know, blood and boobs and whatever else and lowest common denominator that just you know that trope of like oh make a horror movie it'll make money it doesn't have to be good right uh, <laughs> and yet like some of the most talented filmmakers and artists like come up in in horror um which yep. they may have gotten gotten into it for the money but nonetheless uh i appreciate what you do and all your podcast everything you do so thanks jay pleasure Anytime, brother. I appreciate you taking the time and I look forward to chatting with you again in the future. Hell yeah. Thank you for listening to another episode of Daily Horror Habit. You can follow the show on Twitter at Daily Horror Pod or give me a follow at NotFunnyJ. Thanks again for listening and I'll see you guys next week.